it's one of those days where the the weather is extremely soporific, or at least I'm finding it. I'm finding it very difficult to be focused or or feel present. There's a fog over the entire city. Everything is kind of wet and gray. Although I don't think it's actually raining, and uh, I'm feeling the fog in my brain too. How about you? Yeah, I've been feeling very downbeat all day, and I think I'm very like emotionally affected by the weather just in general. And that combined with like I don't know the lockdown situation that we're currently in here in Toronto. I don't want every single episode to start with like lockdown update, but <laughs> but you know, never nevertheless, it's been rainy all week and you know, I feel like I'm in a goddamn Roman Polanski movie with just like the walls of the apartment closing in on me. <laughs> you know, so, something that I've been doing to try to avoid looking at screens, something that I did today was spend like a lot of the morning looking at my art books. Um, <laughs> You're following the advice I gave you on on our recent episode where we did an extended riff that uh, basically devolved into like a YouTube self-help video. <laughs> yeah, well, I was telling you that uh, I was looking at my phone too much and you advised me to just delete the Twitter app, which which I did by the way, and it's been great. Um, (laughs) I'm so much more present just in my day-to-day life. When I go for a walk, I'm not tempted to pull out my phone and look to see if I got a notification, you know? And that's great. But, you know, nevertheless, like just being trapped inside, you find yourself, I find myself looking at screens all the time. And I've, I've been looking at my art books today just to like look at something else, just to look at beauty. I haven't been to an art gallery in, I don't know, a year and a half now, probably. And I really miss it. And looking at these art books, it felt like, wow, there's there's been so much beauty in these books that I've just been neglecting, you know, while I've been looking at my stupid phone. Well, pandemic related, I'm feeling extra downbeat today uh, because I was just speaking to a colleague in British Columbia and uh, I was reminded yet again, as you are when you speak to people that are outside of Toronto and outside of Ontario and outside of Canada, that the experience of the pandemic, just in terms of what's open, you know, putting aside the differential experience of the pandemic that's based on the kind of work you do and, and that sort of thing, you know, just speaking purely in terms of like what's open and how strict lockdowns are and stuff. My friend was telling me that, you know, apart from the past six weeks, that basically things have been open. (laughs) And, you know, that's not good, obviously, from a public health uh, standpoint, at least uh, from what I understand about the uh, effectiveness of lockdowns. But I mean, I imagine it uh, has made life uh, easier in some uh, in some ways. I mean, the catalyst for uh, us discussing this was that I've started wearing like a big uh, headband because my hair has gotten so out of control. I mean, I'm not wearing it right now, but it's a new look I'm trying just because I haven't had a haircut for, I don't know, nine months, 10 months or something. And yet uh, my friend who I was talking to had a haircut that looked like maybe like two days old or something. And I thought, how is that even possible? Um, and guess what? The pandemic is different depending on where you live. I cut my own hair, by the way. I don't know. I don't know if you can detect that. Uh, took scissors to it a few weeks ago. And then, you know, after it had a few weeks to settle in and it became clear which parts were the problem spots that I missed, <laughs> you like as a, as a non-professional barber, then I took a hack at those. And right now it seems okay, I think. I mean, the courage to do that. I mean, you're a you're a you're a braver man than I. I would never go near. I would never take a pair of scissors to my hair. I'm still terrified when I trim my beard and my mustache. I'm t- still terrified about what might happen if I take it too far. Because uh, one time I actually did cut my beard too short, and it's like it's just in one place, and there's nothing for it. You just have to take it all off and start again. It sucks. Oh yeah, I'll tell you about some of the art I was looking at today. You know, I pulled off. Uh, this is not political at all. It's just <laughs> what's been 
keeping me sane. I pulled off a book of uh, Monet water lilies, which are so beautiful if you see them in a gallery. But it was weird when I was looking through the Monet water lily book, it's like every painting is a full course meal. And I almost felt overwhelmed by the beauty that was in the book. There were almost like too many good paintings in there. (laughs) It's like, please, a little bit of relief. I can only take one or two of these at a time. So then I moved on to just looking at the minimalists. I was looking at Barnett Newman, who he used to be a hugely controversial figure because all of his paintings were just like black with one red stripe, you know? And I think the National Gallery in Ottawa bought one of his paintings for an insane amount of money. And that was one of those things that whatever the conservative rag was at the time, (laughs) like the Toronto Sun, they were like, oh, can you believe this that passes for art and you're your taxpayer dime is being used to fund this. Right. It's like, this is why you're waiting extra time for the bus is because elites are spending your money on, on shit like that. Anyway, I am a sucker for insane minimalist art. I love it. I love the challenge that it poses. I love that. Like I've got this whole book of minimalist sculpture and it'll be like 30 bricks on the ground in a completely empty room. And it's like, that's art. And that's a huge challenge. It's like, okay, how do I find the beauty in that? Where do I find the beauty? And I don't think that's your taste in art, Luke, but... But I love that challenge. I love trying to find the beauty in the 30 bricks on the ground. I'm certainly not one to, like, instinctively dismiss minimalist art, but I don't think I'm as, I don't know, intuitively attracted to it as you are. And I do think that speaks to a bit of a philosophical difference between us that's come out in our discussions of Andy Warhol. You might actually go to a screening of a film like Empire State. And uh, I think, you know, I I saw about five minutes of it in, you know, back when I was in film studies. And and that was enough. I get it. Honestly, even the fact that the prof who introduced it was talking about how, like, she she went to a screening of it once. Even using the word screening feels a little, uh, I don't know, it feels a little imprecise and incorrect in that context. It's just a nine-hour movie for people who haven't heard of it, or nine hours, ten hours, something like that, that is literally just a shot of the Empire State Building, and you can't even see the street. It's like, there's, so there's very little going on at all. Well, that's because you probably saw it when it, was, when it was dark out, but over the course of those eight hours, and this is where the action of the film comes, <laughs> it becomes light. And and as uh, as I understand it, at one point, uh, either the lights turn off or the lights turn on. I don't know. People have seen this movie, which is madness because I don't because Warhol certainly didn't watch it. Um, you know, it was certainly not meant to be watched. I think, but people have sat through the whole thing and have written very beautiful poetic things about it. No, I haven't seen that one, but I've seen a lot of Warhol's movies, and um, you know, uh, your mileage may vary. Um, but yeah, I was looking at his art earlier today too because I just. I just love the color. I love the affectless sheen of it. You know, I I was looking at those uh, goddamn soup cans again and looking at the precision with which he paints them. And um, (laughs) I was actually thinking about your hostility towards him. and, And I was thinking, you know, I look at these soup can paintings and it really does feel like being in that space of are you being ironic? I don't even know anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like if you if you were to ask Warhol is this is this soup can which is like a soup can in quotation marks is this ironic or do you really like this I don't think he would know and <laughs> and that's a space that I like to be in Well we we had some feedback on Twitter from a listener recently uh who was amused by the fact that I can't remember what it was on a recent episode where I was saying like I can't even tell if you're being ironic or not about X Y or Z 
And uh, our listener was amazed at this fact. Like, if, if I can't tell if you're being ironic or not, we've entered a whole new transcendent realm. And your reply, which was funny, but I also think is kind of an apt summation of how you conceive of irony, is that you see irony and non-irony as a spectrum rather than a binary. Exactly. Why not both? God, you know, you're talking about those Warhol movies, and I think I might watch one later tonight because I just want to live in that space for a while. I want to live in, like emptiness for a while and meditate in it you know i just want to watch edie sedgwick sit on a bed in her underwear and babble to some speed freak also on the bed and just (laughs) sit there for 60 minutes with them i think i'm going to do that and that may sound ironic and maybe it is but (laughs) all i know is what i want to do Well, I think I need some beauty in my life. I'm gonna I'm gonna find a nice art film and uh, and watch that this evening. My the whole week, my head has been in various stuff related to vaccines and patents. It's been a while, I think, probably not since the Democratic primaries have I uh, spent the entirety of a of a particular week. I mean, up to this point, anyway, uh, thinking and writing and researching just like a single thing. Like I've done three three separate pieces on the politics of patents and vaccines and stuff, and I mean, it, was, it was really hitting me for for some reason. I'm not sure why this week. I mean, just the extent to which all of that language around kind of pulling together and social solidarity, all the sort of wartime nostalgia and all the sort of talk and you know the feeling of radical possibility in the early weeks of the pandemic at least where it's like wow even Donald Trump is doing some kind of evictions moratorium like what's going to come next you know they're talking about making the vaccine uh, free when it when it's developed to everybody is this one of those things where a crisis you know breeds tremendous innovation and there actually is some kind of political realignment you know that's lasting that comes out of this and for whatever reason, it, you know, it's hit me kind of the past couple of weeks, the extent to which, I mean, the answer was really no. Um, I mean, particularly <laughs> when it when when it's related, when we're talking about vaccines. Damn, you got me worked up there for a minute thinking, <laughs> geez, may, maybe it is. <laughs> I mean, well, like there's a wider conversation to be had about, you know, the Biden administration and, you know, first hundred days and a, an apparent break from kind of a a fear around deficit, you know, spending and things like that. I don't want to talk about that uh, right now. Uh, I just don't have it in me. Um, But uh, I'm talking, you know, especially in relation to vaccines and vaccine politics, um, because it really is the case that uh, global capitalism has just like the forces of global capitalism have completely suffocated, you know, our ability to to act cooperatively as a species in the common good. And a lot of this has to do with the politics of patents, which I've been thinking about a lot early this week. And, and weirdly enough, the thing that kind of got me thinking about this, this began as, so, as you know, all the best ideas do by getting annoyed at something on Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's time for our weekly segment. Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dwell on it, but I mean, it's like I, I've been seeing all these, me- you know, like we've talked about in the past how the vaccination selfie that's become the, you know, that's become the new vote selfie or whatever. And it's like I get it. I'm not like begrudging anyone's vaccination selfie. I'll probably, I'll probably tweet about it when I get a vaccine in a hundred years or whenever it finally is. But one thing I started noticing was how the vaccines themselves have become like memes and the, and like the vaccines are just, you know, they just have the imprint of, of particular companies, right? Mm-hmm. So like there was a viral hashtag, at least in Canada, about like 
Gen AstraZeneca or something like that. Gen AstraZeneca, whatever, that's not it. Something like that. But, you know, people uh, over the age of 40, over the age of 45, something like that, using this hashtag and kind of attaching a generational politics to uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine specifically, whatever. You know, I started seeing there was this viral tweet that someone who worked at Twitter had where it's like, it's a picture of like Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu and, and Drew Barrymore's Charlie's Angels. And the caption was like, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca teaming up to save save summer or something like that, uh, and I think that was the one that just that just broke me because it really does underscore the extent to which private companies that are selling the vaccines for a profit mm-hmm. and that are hoarding these patents, like refusing to share them because they want to maximize profit, they they've just carried out this incredible PR coup where now they're treated as saviors of the human race, the saviors of summer, like just fodder for these memes and stuff. It's a lot like what what happened with Kleenex except a lot more insidious for obvious reasons like I ended up doing a lot of research into uh, the history of Kleenex this week because, you know, Kleenex is, you know, I feel like the paradigmatic case of the brand sort of just subsuming the product. Like when you say the word Kleenex, it's more like the product that comes to mind as opposed to the registered trademark. And, you know, Kleenex, I I was unable to find like the latest numbers, but as of 2010, they had a 46% market share in like the global market for facial tissues. The point is they have a monopoly on the, you know, they have a symbolic monopoly, right? Because like their, their trademark just is what the product is now for a lot of people. And this is fucked up for so many reasons. When Oxford University, you know, when its vaccine was um, promising initially in clinical trials, they famously said, when the vaccine is developed, we're going to share the patent. This is going to be like a people's vaccine. That held for a couple weeks until the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation talked them into signing a deal with AstraZeneca for the exclusive production of the vaccine. I think there's reason enough to just complain that like, the vaccine, which is the remedy to this global pandemic, the fact that it's associated with corporate brands and specific private companies at all is a problem. But this isn't a symbolic problem, ultimately, because specific companies uh, having these patents and hoarding them for themselves, it slows the production. There's all this unused production capacity. I did an interview with this guy, Stephen Baranyi, uh, which we're going to have on the Patreon soon, by the way, probably next week. He's been doing a lot of writing on this, and he was speaking to the CEO of a small company here in Ontario uh, that uh, is claiming that their facilities uh, alone would be able to produce 20 million doses over the next year, I think. Um, And this is just like one small company. Uh, There's plenty of private companies that don't have these patents that could be requisitioned, basically, or could just be retained by governments to produce more vaccines if these companies would share the patents. But furthermore, if the patents were universalized, governments could actually build factories themselves. They could build production capacity and massively spike production of the vaccines. So you know, which in fact did happen during World War II when Pfizer was basically forced to turn over its patents by the U.S. War Production Board in the United States. There is precedent for this. A lot of the global IP regime that's behind this really came in in the 1990s with the World Trade Organization. Anyway, it's alarming not only that these companies with, you know, Bill Gates kind of being one of the big puppet masters in the background, it's alarming that, you know, they've been able to pull off a coup like this, but it's still more remarkable. And, and I don't know, it makes me in some ways even angrier that they've they've managed to do this and they're being celebrated. Like we're thanking them for hoarding these uh, these patents that could literally save lives. And just the last thing I'll say on this is, of course, these companies, you know, they're all based in the West, right? So 
It means that people in places like India, places like South Africa, both of whom are urging a temporary uh, waiver of the current patent rules so the vaccine, so the patents can be shared. It means the people in countries like that are going to have to wait a lot longer. There, there are some projections that suggest that poorer countries in Asia and Africa may not get kind of widespread or effective vaccinations until 2023 at the earliest. And this is so that a handful of for-profit pharmaceutical giants in the West can make a few extra billion dollars uh, over the next you know, couple of years. It's terrible. Well, I'm going to have to fact check something you said. You said that it was Bill and Melinda Gates that have been encouraging them. But as I understand, they're the good billionaires. They're the ones who want to help save the world and give knowledge and wealth away. Well, you know, it's incredible. You know, I, I did. I wrote a piece on Gates specifically this week because he did this absolutely grotesque interview on British TV last weekend. And the New Republic had a had a fantastic long read, which people should check out. If you just search New Republic Bill Gates, you should you can find it. Um, and that's on his role specifically in the in this crisis. But one of the things that's incredible if you go through press coverage of Bill Gates is just how effusive uh, so much of it is. You know, sometimes I wonder, you know, particularly around someone like Elon Musk, who's just so like, I don't know, militantly uncool. You're like, how do these how do guys like this have so many fans? Like, (laughs) like, how are there people that think these guys are cool? Coolness aside, how do they get these reputations as these like generous, you know, global benefactors? You know, Bill Gates in whatever it was, 1999, 2000, said that he was going to give away all his money. And he's gotten considerably richer since then. I think his wealth has quadrupled or something like that since he made that promise. Well, he's storing up money that he can give away later. Well, well, right. I mean, so it really does come down to money. It's like if you are as wealthy as that, you can literally just, I mean, you could basically just buy press coverage. I mean, really. I mean, you can buy yourself a reputation. And so, you know, you go through the press coverage on Bill Gates during the pandemic and all the headlines are stuff like, Bill Gates wants to save the world. Will the world listen? You know, it's all it's like all framed in that kind of terms. Like, is the world ready to accept Bill Gates's beneficence? Uh, it's uh, it's incredibly depressing. But um, one of the things that really comes across when you listen to Bill Gates in these interviews, and, and one of the things that I talked about with Stephen Baranyi was that, you know, Gates really is an ideologue. If you sat like most reasonable people down, he said there's a global pandemic. It affects every person in every country and you know every corner of the world you know and science has discovered a vaccine which will give people immunity to this give us a basic model for for what we do next you know most reasonable people would say oh you would just make the vaccine like available as widely as possible you produce as much of it as possible etc but to somebody like bill gates to someone who's drunk the kool-aid of you know neoliberal globalism i mean this just is the only way for him this is the best of all possible worlds and until you know we rest people like that of their power you know every time there's a global crisis or every time there's a global pandemic it's like bill gates just gets to appoint himself global minister of health a function that nobody chose for him but himself well i know another capitalist icon <laughs> come on man who wants to provide food and shelter for the homeless oppose discrimination and support equal rights while also promoting equal rights for women. Someone who cares about the massacres in Sri Lanka. That man's name is Patrick Bateman, and he is the protagonist, the anti-hero of this episode's movie, 2000's American Psycho, directed by Mary Heron. In 87, Huey released this. Four, their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpieces, Hip to Be Square, a song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Ah! Right there! Reservation in Georgia now! 
So I just want to say off the top, I had so much fun watching this. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel the need to say that every time we watch something that I actually enjoy because we're kind of masochists on this show. This is maybe the fourth or even the fifth time I've seen this film. I think I've enjoyed it more with each subsequent time. And uh, I always forget how funny it is. I've seen it about that many times, too. Um, you know, recently when we talked about Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew, you said that you found the movie a difficult subject because essentially everything it has to say, it says. It's a straight adaptation of Matthew and what is there to tease out there. And I have to say that I felt that way a bit watching American Psycho again today because it is a movie where, you know, I, I kept trying to th- figure out, like, what is the angle of approach on this? Because to to state the movie's thesis, you're going to sound a little bit silly because it's <laughs> it's just right there. So I'm curious, even though this is, I guess, in theory, an ideal choice for the podcast, what made you want to do it? I mean, it's a few things. I mean, one is just that uh, it's a movie I really like. Uh, sure. Always happy to watch a good movie. <laughs> Two, uh, I mean, it's a movie from... The year 2000, which is set in the 1980s, but feels like a 90s movie, uh, which I don't know. I don't really know what to do with that, but I think it's interesting. Three, it's based on a book by Brad Easton Ellis, who is our spiritual touchstone. <laughs> Everything that we do in this podcast is directly influenced by his podcast. Three, uh, for me, I guess, was going to be that, you know, this is a film about the Reagan era, but I feel that its take on that era is very kind of prescient I don't know, in terms of the world that came out of the 1990s and, and in many ways the world we're living in now. You know, I have brain poison from the work I do, but, you know, so many Patrick Bateman's like spiels, I mean, honestly, his affect to me, I just hear like Justin Trudeau. I just hear... You could see Patrick Bateman at Wee Day, couldn't you? Yes, or... exactly. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> the energy. And, you know, I want to be clear, I'm not being too literal about this parallel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just in the sense that, you know, with Patrick Bateman, you know, in this famous open opening monologue, you know, where he says there is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. You can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours and our lifestyles are probably comparable, but I simply don't exist or whatever he says. I mean, I feel like that's, uh, you know, taken out of context, I feel like that applies to uh, so many of the political figures that I find the most insufferable, the most cloying, just these completely hollow figures whose only skill is kind of channeling like the schlocky median cultural or political view on anything, uh, who seem to have you know, no real convictions and have almost embraced the idea that they are brands and like have restructured their entire sense of self such that they can like recalibrate the story they tell people for each election cycle or in the case of uh, some of them, you know, multiple times during a you know particular election cycle and always deliver with the same kind of lacrimose sincerity uh, that's totally Teflon and have absolutely no shame about it, which, of course, is uh, what Patrick Bateman does throughout the movie. I agree with you that the thesis of the movie is somewhat overt. And in that sense, it doesn't give us a lot to unpack. But I still think it's a very interesting thesis and one the movie executes very well. And so I think there's plenty to plenty to discuss. Well, the film is set in Manhattan in 1987 during the era of the bonfire of the vanities and Wall Street. The protagonist is, as you said, Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale. He's a young investment banker, and it seems, based on the evidence in the film, that his life is devoted less to the work of investment banking than it is to playing the role of a wealthy 
young Manhattanite. We see that he has an impeccable sense for style and decor. He has a rigorous workout and skincare regimen. He only visits the trendiest dining establishments. He has, I would say, lower middle brow taste in music. Uh, (laughs) Big fan of uh, Huey Lewis. His music rants are some of the funniest parts of the film where he's where he's talking like just totally deadpan about like a Phil Collins track or something like that. He is also secretly a serial killer, although uh, spoiler folks, spoiler for this 20 year old, very famous movie. uh, He is perhaps not a serial killer. The last act suggests that the killings may be a fantasy. But nevertheless, on screen, we see him murder a homeless person, sex workers, and a few of his professional colleagues, the most noteworthy of whom is Paul Allen, played by Jared Leto. Uh, This character committed the unpardonable sin of having a better business card than him. Look at that subtle off-white coloring. The tasteful thickness of it. Oh my God. It even has a watermark. Something wrong? Patrick? You're sweating. And this death attracts the attention of Detective Kimball, played by Willem Dafoe, who may or may not have Bateman pegged as a suspect, and who is the character in the film who rivals Bateman in terms of his artificiality and his impenetrable affect. That's essentially the plot. It's not your typical three-act story. It's it's more of an episodic narrative. I understand that the book was even more episodic. I haven't read the original book. I mean, it was Brett Easton Ellis's star-making debut. It was such a hot potato that Simon & Schuster, which had paid a $300,000 advance, uh, ended up canceling the book, and another publisher quickly picked it up. Uh, Like the movie, it's told from the point of view of Patrick Bateman, although from the excerpts I've read, it's quite a bit harder to take. It's very long. It's very cold. It was most notorious for depicting the crimes, many of them sexual in nature, with a level of detail that rivals the Marquis de Sade. Um, Although the book is equally clinical and long-winded in describing Patrick Bateman's apartment and the trendy restaurants, etc. And all of those things in the book are kind of depicted very coldly and very equally on the same fields. And that's, I think, one reason why I've never bothered to read the book. It sounded a little bit more like a conceptual exercise to me than something something I would actually want to sit down and slog through 500 pages of. Right, says the guy who's going to watch an Andy Warhol film tonight and stares at bricks. What can I say? Uh, Edie Sedgwick is a delight on screen. She has star quality, and Warhol understood that. I read Norman Mailer's ambivalent review of the book, and I'll just quote a paragraph from it. He said, American Psycho is saying that the 80s were spiritually disgusting, and the author's presentation is the crystallization of such horror. When an entire new class thrives on the ability to make money out of the manipulation of money and becomes altogether obsessed with the surface of things, that is, with luxury commodities, food, and appearance, then, in effect, says Ellis, We have entered a period of the absolute manipulation of humans by humans. The objective correlative of total manipulation is cold cock murder. Murder is now a lumber mill where humans can be treated with the same lack of respect as trees. 
Now, in the circles I travel in, in the corners of online that I'm in, Brad Easton Ellis has a pretty bad reputation these days. And I often see people talk about the movie American Psycho as being this act of a feminist filmmaker, Mary Heron, almost like reclaiming this book or at least bringing a welcome female perspective to the material. Her other films have mostly been revisionist takes on notorious real-life women. The first feature she made was about Valerie Solanas, the radical feminist writer who shot Andy Warhol. Later on, she made films about Betty Page and Anna Nicole Smith, and she just recently did the miniseries Alias Grace. I just revisited Goodfellas this week which is a fantastic movie, by the way. No huge surprise there. Uh, highly recommend it. Yeah, good, good, it. good film. <laughs> and I mean, I think Scorsese might be a useful point of comparison with this movie just in terms of what a feminist filmmaker might bring to it. I mean, this movie is a lot colder than the typical Scorsese film. I don't know, like differences are hard to articulate because American Psycho, like that business card scene, the famous scene where everybody is showing each other their beautiful business cards that they've had designed. Like that scene is as fetishistic as anything in a Scorsese movie. And yet it feels a little bit more absurd. You know what I mean? I'm not sure if I can put into words exactly why American Psycho is a, is a colder experience than a movie like Goodfellas and a, a more absurd experience than Goodfellas, which is certainly an absurd and funny movie on its own. But 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 I think it is. There's some there's something in the gaze of the movie that is not quite the same. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I I, I wish I had a better thesis. But like the Supreme Court, I know it when I see it. <laughs> well, characters in in Scorsese movies, and particularly Goodfellas, you know, all their absurdity is on the surface. You know, they're often criminals, uh, and you know they they're very guided by id and by by vice. And in American Psycho, the you know most of the characters anyway are pure artifice. And even if they are guided by id and, and vice, those things are kind of concealed, which, which in many ways is what the whole kind of thesis of the movie is. So by by point of comparison, uh, I feel like that's why uh, a film like this feels very different from a film like Goodfellas. It felt a lot like the King of Comedy to me on this viewing, actually. I guess I'll call it cold again, but the fact that the protagonist is so kind of like stubbornly artificial and and impenetrable. Most of the Scorsese protagonists are these open wounds, but Rupert Pupkin and Patrick Bateman aren't. There's so little point of entry for the audience. I discovered uh, when I was preparing for the episode an interview with Bale. He's very thoughtful, and he's you know he, you know I, I guess some some talented actors are very intuitive and you know, they're unable to kind of intellectualize their performances. With him, I I, th- I thought he was quite lucid. He's very clear on the fact that Bateman is a performer. Bateman is is all artifice, and so that's how he chose to play him. And uh, by the sound of it, that was a very liberating decision. I feel like this would be a completely different film with with somebody different in the role. I mean, it is just an absolute tour de force performance. Only somewhat relatedly, I mean, he did get in absolutely incredible shape for this movie, which he says in the interview is, you know, that's that's part of it. It's not that's not, you know, just purely an actor's vanity. It's it's very much part of uh, who Bateman is. The famous morning routine at the beginning, by the way, has always annoyed me because even though, as you could probably tell from our recent conversation about morning routines, uh, I do do a kind of a version of that. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say 
doing a thousand crunches, terrible idea, very inefficient way to train. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, I, I actually said that while I was watching the movie last night and my girlfriend made a really good point, which was that like that, that is actually kind of the point. It's like, of course, Patrick Bateman has this like absurd way of training where he's just like doing as many repetitions as possible because that's exactly what he would do. It's an unusual performance because it aims for something other than naturalism. As an audience, I think we've been trained ever since Marlon Brando to accept realism and naturalism as not just the default style, but the correct style. Yeah. And when I think of contemporary actors who have been willing to uh, veer from that, you know, I think of Damon Wayans in the movie Bamboozled by Spike Lee. I think of Nicolas Cage in certain of his more interesting performances and Bale. And they're going for a different kind of expression, and it's very risky. And, you know, what's funny is Bale famously modeled this performance partly off of Tom Cruise. (laughs) And he said something about Tom Cruise, like, unless I'm misremembering, that it's because there's nothing behind the eyes or something like that. I think the story was like he was watching Cruise on some talk show, and then he called Mary Heron and said, quick, like, turn on this talk show. (laughs) Like, what's funny is Tom Cruise, one of the most popular actors of the last 50 years, and also one of the least natural presences you could find. But Cruz doesn't deliver his performances in quotation marks the way that Bale does here. Like mm-hmm. Tom Cruise's performances, as as unusual as they are, are still coded as naturalistic performances, but Bale isn't. By the way, you were quoting his opening monologue and that part where he says, I simply am not there. It's odd that he says that at the beginning because it suggests a level of self-knowledge that we don't see elsewhere in the movie. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm not sure uh, exactly what to do with that. The, the thing that I think is very striking about the opening monologue that sets the tone for the whole movie, I mean, I guess there is technically a, a short scene before that, but, you know, it's the fact that he mentioned, he says what his address is uh, in this swanky building that, like people recognize throughout the movie when he says he lives there they're like nice you know he mentions that before he mentions his name or any other kind of you know details which is key to the project of the whole movie this is not really a movie about a serial killer i don't even think i mean sometimes it's referred to as a horror film and i mean this is not really that at all the the horror and the and the murders are completely incidental to the actual target of the movie which is you know as that norman mailer quote you read suggests you know is the decadence of these like reagan era patricians who put up this kind of facade of social concern and whatever but are just you know totally bloodthirsty their cocktail conversation is just you know rank misogyny bateman is also a racist there's a scene where we see him just like brutally hectoring uh this asian american couple that runs a a local laundromat you know he has that monologue where he's talking about how you know we need to uh we have to end apartheid for one and slow down the nuclear arms race stop terrorism and world hunger we have to provide food and shelter for the homeless and oppose racial discrimination and promote civil rights while also promoting equal rights for women. We have to encourage a return to traditional moral values. Most importantly, we have to promote general social concern and less materialism in young people. The most obvious kind of surface level reading of the film is almost so generic that saying it out loud is embarrassing, which is, you know, there's an artifice that sustains this class of people and what's underneath is actually much more kind of carnal and and violent. 
But for me, where the film is most effective is in all of these scenes where Bateman and and his, uh, you know, his colleagues who are all, by the way, they're all like completely indistinguishable. He works with like five or six interchangeable guys who all have, they all seem to have two first names. Like that's the, that's the type of guy. They can't even tell each other apart, which is so funny. And Mary Heron goes out of her way to make sure that they all kind of physically resemble one another too. So you kind of forget. I mean, the effect is somewhat spoiled by the fact that people like Justin Theroux and Jared Leto are very, you know, recognizable now. But the point stands. That business card scene is the most obvious example of this. But to me, the film is at its most effective when it's it's showing how kind of obsessively competitive about the minutia of you know, Manhattan patrician living in the late 1980s, like all these guys are like, any sense of self they have is just found it's discovered in trying to find these like minor points of distinction. So you know, there's a scene where he after he's murdered Paul Allen with the axe in what is maybe the funniest scene in the movie while going off about like the artistic genius of Huey Lewis in the news. You know, he goes to Paul Allen's apartment and he says, there is a moment of sheer panic when I realized that Paul's apartment overlooks the park and is obviously more expensive than mine. They're obsessed with dinner reservations. Like one of the other things Paul Allen does to make him a target for Bateman is uh, he says that he's gotten this like Friday night dinner reservation with these great seats at this particular place where none of them can get reservations. There's that line during the business card scene where Paul Allen confuses Patrick Bateman with someone else. And then in Bateman's head you hear him saying that he and that other guy actually have the same barber but then he then he hastens to add but i have a slightly better haircut you know <laughs> so these guys are also interchangeable none of them have any kind of sense of self to fall back on like the only thing that seems to entertain or sustain patrick bateman apart from his bloodlust is just this kind of weird obsession with like top 40 music, you know, with artists like Whitney Houston and Phil Collins and Huey Lewis. Like these guys just don't seem to have any kind of inner life at all because their outer life, the artifice, has just kind of totally subsumed them. I mean, he has that line about we need to encourage less materialism in young people. And it's like, you know, that's the kind of thing that comes through in one of his monologues. And it's like all these guys are just totally defined by their materialism. There's just nothing else to them. They can't even tell each other apart. I'll tell you a funny personal story. About 10 years ago, I was in the home of a fairly wealthy person. Ooh, humble brag. Oh, oh yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> it was me. Uh, no, just, just, just kidding, folks. But he had a guest room where there was a book on the table. And it was a book I was familiar with. And I said, oh, you've got you've got that book. And I wanted to talk about it. He didn't know what the book was. He had never heard of it. The, the de- it's a prop. The decorator put it there. Right. That blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't understand why you would want to have all these books that you had no personal stake in, in your personal space. <laughs> but hey, maybe I've answered my own question. But anyway, getting back to the movie, again, not having read the book, I can't give a detailed analysis on how it departs from it. But it seems to me that this movie is not a flat line like people who have read the book report it is. Like, the murder scenes have more energy than the other scenes. They pack a bigger punch. I'm not sure if that's if that's just a result of if you dramatize a murder, it's naturally going to be more dramatic than a scene of people eating dinner. I also don't know to what extent it was Mary Heron's innovation that there's a scene like the one with Chloe Sevigny as his secretary where he brings her back to his apartment on like kind of a date and it seems like he's going to kill her but then through unusual circumstances he doesn't and he seems sort of tortured by it. And he seems increasingly tortured through the second half of the movie, like he's dealing with a compulsion 
and is not merely a sadist. Yeah, when I first saw the film, I was quite puzzled by that. And the very first time I saw it, I remember coming away from it thinking, well, that was pretty entertaining and it's a good movie, but it's it's pretty flawed. It's not a kind of 10 out of 10. It's not a home run. But I think I took the final act too literally and I kind of missed something. I didn't, I on first viewing, which was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I interpreted the kind of absurdist ending like it was really happening, and I just sort of thought that the intended meaning was that he has some kind of crisis of conscience or something, which is not what's happening at all. I just got it wrong. This is actually a good segue into something else I wanted to bring up, which was that during my kind of research around the film, I was looking for interviews with Bale, with Mary Heron and, and such, you know, I stumbled upon what I think might be, and this won't be a surprise to you, uh, but what I think might be uh, the most annoying tendency in sort of like popular film criticism today, which this movie is absolutely primed for, which is the American Psycho ending explained uh, type video. <laughs> there are several of these videos that have millions of hits where it's somebody, you know, treating the movie like it's this kind of puzzle, like there are these clues that you can find and um, you know, it's it's a Rubik's cube and and with the with the appropriate guidance you can you can solve it. Mm-hmm. I don't like that for a variety of reasons. I mean, one cuz it removes I mean, I think it's quite an ambiguous movie, particularly in the final act. But more importantly, I think you know, it robs the film of any kind of symbolism or poetry, you know, it just becomes this kind of static thing for you to unpack. And you can mount it on your wall like a deer that you just killed. And though I though I find that kind of thing pretty annoying, I did come across something, um, a regret of sorts that Mary Heron expressed, which is that she she thought that the ambiguity at the film lent itself to a sort of dreamlike reading where people interpret the whole movie as a dream, where all of uh, Patrick Bateman's you know murders and everything else he does are all kind of made up. And she says that was never her intention. I mean, for, for those who haven't seen it, kind of in the final arc of the film, I mean, the, the only other kind of plot point we need to discuss, in the final arc of the film, things grow kind of increasingly absurd and improbable. So Bateman does a murder where his victim, she almost gets away. She's running down the stairwell in his building and like she gets all the way to the bottom and he chases her naked with a chainsaw and he throws the chainsaw all the way down the stairwell and kills her, which is just like very improbable. He goes back to Paul Allen's apartment where, you know, in theory, I guess he's like stashed bodies and stuff. And it's just like kind of a different apartment. It's being shown. There's like a realtor there who immediately sees that he's up to no good and kind of like sends him on his way. As he's kind of finally melting down, he picks up this cat next to an ATM. And then the ATM uh, reads, feed me a stray cat which uh, the cat gets away, by the way, for those concerned. He doesn't doesn't feed the cat into the machine. He shoots at the police as he's kind of uh, fleeing through the streets, and he fires, like, two bullets from this small pistol and, like, blows up like a police car. And then in the, in the kind of final scene of the film... Um, he goes to talk to this guy who uh, is his lawyer, who he's he's left this elaborate message for, like a voicemail message, confessing to all his murders, saying he's murdered like 40 or 50 people. He can't even keep track. And the guy is not only not surprised by this, you know, he thinks it's a prank. He doesn't think he's talking to Patrick Bateman. Like this lawyer is talking to somebody else other than Patrick Bateman, who thinks the prank is that Patrick Bateman was just sort of a character adopted for the call or whatever. Like Patrick Bateman is just another guy who works here who works at this mergers and acquisitions place, which I think amusingly is called Price and Price. So just adding to the homogeneity of it all. You can't tell any of the guys that work at the firm apart, but also the two partners in the firm uh, have the exact same name. 
But so it turns out in this final conversation, the other thing that comes out is that this guy has actually had dinner with Paul Allen in London 10 days before. So Paul Allen is, is, seems to be not dead after all. Paul Allen, who, uh, who we've seen Patrick Bateman murder with an axe to the head. So these are the things that kind of lend the film to these sort of puzzle-like interpretations, which I don't really like. But I think ultimately there would give it the necessary ambiguity for all the serial killer stuff to be secondary. What the real kind of subject of the film is which is this, you know, bourgeois yuppie culture that's sprung up around Wall Street as the American economies become more and more hyper-financialized. And a critical detail that appears in this final scene is that they're all sitting around trying to make a reservation somewhere, and Ronald Reagan is on CNN on the TV discussing the Iran-Contra scandal, and one of them just offhandedly says something to the effect of, you know, uh, he, pre- uh, he presents himself as a harmless old codger, but, but inside... And it's not that I think the film has some kind of, you know, didactic mission, like the film can only be read as a literal statement about the Reagan era or something like that. But I do think that by including this Ronald Reagan cameo at the end, the film is very deliberately positioning itself as like this culture is an extension of of this zeitgeist, you know. During the first part of the film, upon reviewing, I was sort of thinking about what what was kind of strange about it to me is that even though it's set in the 1980s, the kinds of things Bateman is saying when he's giving these kind of cloying monologues about social concern, when he's when he's telling the guy next to him, you know, Jesus, McDermott, what does that have to do with anything? I've seen that bastard fist talking on the phone and spinning a fucking menorah. Not a menorah. You spin a dreidel. Oh, my God, Bateman. You want me to fry you up some fucking potato pancakes, some latkes? No, just... Uh, cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks. Oh, I forgot. Bateman's dating someone from the ACLU. <laughs> you know, to me, that that was reading as an unintentionally prescient statement about where the culture of professional liberalism was was going in the future, you know? But by the end of the film, I, I was settling on another reading, which I think is strongly bolstered by Reagan appearing on CNN in the final scene. I think in a really critical way, this is a film about the Reagan era. Which is, you know, supposedly, at least in terms of its its outward rhetoric, was all about we're, we're going to allow individuals to flourish, right? We're going to get the government off your back. You know, and the Cold War element of that was that, like, Reagan was supposedly staring down, you know, the homogenizing force of of global communism in the interests of, of kind of a pluralism. Though, of course, the real, you know, the real project of Reaganism was about, you know, upward redistribution and, and financializing the economy. And what the movie shows us is, you know, Reagan is supposedly staring down, you know, this, this homogenizing global force. And yet, you know, here we are among, you know, the capitalist man who is the product of his, you know, uh, his ideal vision of capitalism. And everybody is identical. <laughs> the guys that work at this Wall Street firm literally can't tell one another apart. They have nothing that distinguishes them. Whether Bateman's murders are literal or not, violence and bloodlust seem to be the only thing. One reading of his violence and bloodlust is that they're the only thing he can really do to kind of set himself apart. Because ultimately, he, you know, he can't find any sense of self and all these superficial things he, uh, he attaches himself to. He does have a very ambiguous final monologue uh, that I wanted to bring up that he delivers as, uh, as you can see in the background, there's a sign that says, this is not an exit. And he says, there are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. 
But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. So I could offer a very heavy-handed end-of-history reading of that. No, um, please do. Please I'm do. Not... <laughs> We've established last week that Freddy Got Fingered is the ultimate end-of-history film. <laughs> anyway, I'm not exactly sure how to read this uh, this very enigmatic kind of final code of the movie as an affirmation that, you know, regardless of whether what he's done is to be taken literally or not, regardless of whether he's actually murdered anybody or done any of these awful things, none of this has actually ultimately reinforced his sense of self. There's still no there there. So there's actually no escape from this culture. There's no way to retrieve a sense of self in any of it because it's all superficial. You know, it's all artifice. Anyway, I guess if you're making this movie today, uh, all these guys, I mean, I guess they might work on Wall Street, but they also have McKinsey energy. I think you can imagine them working there. Or Silicon Valley, perhaps. Yeah, in fact, you could totally do a version of of this for Silicon Valley. You can imagine Patrick Bateman on Rogan, (laughs) where he uh, smokes weed. I said at the beginning that thing, which we didn't really unpack, because I'm not really sure what to do with it, about how there's a movie about the Reagan era and about the 1980s that feels like a 90s movie. I still don't really know what to do with that, but if we were to offer a kind of end of history reading for this, I mean, it is almost set at the at the end of history. It's 1987, right? Can I ask, how would you define a 90s movie? Like, do you mean like an end of history movie? In the sense of our podcast, yes, I do, I do sure. mean an end of history movie. But as viewed that way as a kind of 90s end of history movie, I think the reading is like, you know, here we are, we've arrived at the end of the rainbow, like we've reached the, you know, the superlative form of uh, human existence. This is humanity's final form. It's a bunch of functionally indistinguishable guys doing completely inscrutable work that has no creativity whatsoever attached to it and is also removed from any productive function to speak of. So congratulations, folks. Uh, We've arrived at the end of history. Here it is. Good luck. (laughs) 